Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at I want to thank uh, Trace for Tracy Wild uh, for speaking for me last Sunday. I heard she did an incredible job as she talked about tabling. Uh, can we give her a hand? Thank you, Trace. Wherever you are, she's here somewhere in the house. But uh, we have a world class. There she is. Give it up for Tracy Amanda Wild Pence. Uh, but we love, we love Trace, and uh, we have a world-class teaching team. I say this all the time. So we're, we're blessed, right? We're blessed as a church. Not only do we have a world-class teaching team, but we got a world-class worship team. Can we give it up to our worship team? Thank you, guys. Love you guys so much. Uh, my wife and I, we were gone for a week. Uh, we had a wedding that I was in, and then we were able to preach at Ocean's Church, and we're so glad, glad to be a part of that growing community. Guys, God is moving in Orange County, and I'm so proud of Mark and Rochelle are doing an incredible job. They have an incredible staff and incredible people. They're, they are building for the kingdom in California. And how many of you know that, that we need to move a God in California? And we need to move a God in Idaho? And we need to move God of everywhere, right? And so, uh, so proud of their stance and their passion to, to preach Jesus uh, boldly in their California situation. So it was great to be a part of that. It was great to uh, spend time with friends and family. Uh, we had the opportunity to go to Disneyland for a couple days and uh, with 7,000 kids, we had help. Um, it was amazing vacation, unfortunately, because we had so many toddlers turned into hellcation. And uh, we will not be doing that for a long, 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 long time. No, we were, it was, it was such a blessing. <laughs> you <ex> <laughs> Oh, I'm still tired from that purgatory of a trip. I think God was purging me of all my sin. Anyways, somebody like, he plays some purgatory? No, I do not. All right. I want to begin today with a tragic story um, of, a, of a man named Nathan. Nathan, who was uh, a trans male, died in September 2013 uh, in <clears throat> Belgium. He was born a girl. He was named Nancy. And uh, she was always taught, Nathan, that is, Nancy at the time as she was growing up, was always taught that uh, her parents, or she always thought that her parents preferred uh, her brothers over her. In fact, her mother was quoted as saying, when I saw my daughter, Nancy, for the very first time, my dream was shattered. In her words, she was ugly. I had a phantom birth. Her death does not bother me whatsoever. I feel no sorrow, no doubt, or remorse. We had no, and we never had a bond in her words. So obviously Nancy grew up feeling rejected. And finally, and this is the tragic story of her life, finally settled on the idea of becoming a man. So between 2009 and 2012, Nancy underwent three major sex change operations, thinking that such a change would fix everything. It did not. In fact, she would look in the mirror in her own words and she saw something disgusting. She saw something disgusting and she felt disgusting. 
And consequently, uh, she experienced major and traumatic depression. In the end, Nathan volunteered uh, his life to be euthanized by the state by lethal injection at the age of 44. A week before, Nathan threw a party with a group of friends and said this, I do not, and this is the logic, this is the logic behind why he wanted to die, I do not want to be a monster anymore. This is a tragic and heartbreaking story, which of course is extraordinary, and a lot of trans, uh, a lot of the people in the trans population have not experienced something as traumatic as this, but it is important to reflect on it because our young people today, and I think many of you would agree, uh, are in desperate need of help. They're in desperate need of Jesus. They're in desperate need of healing. They're in desperate need of hope. So today I'm going to be talking about gender dysphoria, and from the outset I want to make it very clear that I'm not an expert on gender. Amen? But I do want to give you a constellation of thoughts that are related to what's happening in our culture, one, and then I want to do my best to kind of flesh out, like I did a couple weeks ago, who we are, and then I want to talk about, really quick, how should the church respond to our cultural moment? So when it comes to the trans population historically, and I think this is important for us to understand, it has always been about 0.01% and overwhelmingly male. For girls, it was one in 30,000 females, historically, who identified as trans. Now in our cultural moment, in the making of our cultural moment, it is one in 20 college-age girls. In the UK, uh, this year, they're seeing a 4,000 increase in females receiving a referral for gender surgery. What used to be called gender identity disorder, now what we call layman's term uh, gender dysphoria, is characterized by, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, by a severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. And I think it's very important for everyone in this room who has never maybe been around this or maybe you never experienced this to note that this is a real psychological distress that a lot of young people are feeling. Now let me say this really quick. I wanted to find uh, terms here like I did a couple weeks ago. Gender is how we experience and define ourselves as either male or female. One. Two, it's how we express ourselves through actions and clothes, et cetera, demeanor. And three, gender is also culturally shaped by certain expectations. So the psychological distress in a lot of young people is real. It typically begins, gender dysphoria that is, begins in early childhood between the ages of two and four, though it may grow more severe in adolescence. But the good news is that most cases, nearly 70%, and other studies would even say up to 80%, uh, childhood gender dysphoria resolves itself in adulthood. However, in the words of one author in the last decade, everything has changed. Have you felt that change? Have you seen that change? The Western world has seen a sudden surge of adolescents claiming to have gender dysphoria. This is atypical because remember, the classic features of gender dysphoria are those who feel in incongruence with their biological sex and how they want to give expression to their gender between the ages of two and four and maybe a little bit later. Now we have the sudden surge of teenage girls between the ages of 12 and 18 that are identifying either as trans or are self-diagnosing themselves as having gender dysphoria. So the question by many experts, and some of these experts are being silenced or censored, 
But the question that's being asked is, of course, there's a multifaceted reason for this phenomenon, but what is one of the major reasons why uh, 12 to 18-year-old teenage girls are identifying as trans or experiencing gender dysphoria, the psychological distress with their biological sex? And many are now saying it is because of the uptick of social media, all the different social media platforms, trans activists, influencers, etc. Strict, narrow gender roles that if you are a girl, but you like the color blue, you must be a boy. We have many different narratives out there, uh, many trans activists that are not psychologists that are trying to... Um, <clears throat> trying to uh, convince uh, the, the world that, that the narrative that if you feel this way, you must be that. So what scholars are calling this is rapid onset gender dysphoria, right? We have an uptick of people, and this is a controversial subject, and I think we need more studies out there. We need more science on this. Again, what's happening right now is a multifaceted, symptomatic thing of our cultural moment. Uh, but I think there is some merit to what is being talked about, but rapid onset gender dysphoria, one of the major contributions is the role of social media in the lives of our young people. So the question is, and I don't want to get into all of this here today, and I could, di I could diagnose this even more, but how should the church respond to this moment, right? And, and I, I, I will address that in about 10 minutes, but first, I want to answer the question, guys, who are we? Like, what constitutes a human? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I am gonna be repetitive, but just kind of go with me. Pretend like you didn't hear this if you were here two weeks ago. But who are we? Or what constitutes being a human person from a biblically formed world-level view? This is where we come to our teaching text here today, and we come to Genesis. We'll begin in Genesis chapter one. We have this beautiful creation story. God delights in his creation. He wants to bless his creation. He looks over what he makes, and he sees it, and then he says, it is good. And then we have the creation of humans. At the end, basically, the denouement of creation, we have the creation of humans. And what Genesis 1 tells us, indisputably, and this is the Christian narrative, the Christian story, that all humans are created in the image of God, male and female, with human dignity, personal purpose, and inviolable rights. In fact, as I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but universal rights is a uniquely Christian concept. Yeah. It's not a concept that's derived from liberal-style democracy or classical liberalism. Christianity has always made the case that every single person sucking oxygen, whether they're bad, wicked, good, smart, ugly, tall, I wish I was taller, right? All of the different things, like all the different kinds of people, doesn't matter. You have dignity. You are an image bearer. In fact, men and women are both human. Equal but different, and they complement each other. You find this in Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 23. So we come to, actually before we come to Genesis chapter 2, I think it's important for us to understand that whoever wins the war over origins wins the war over identity. Whoever wins the, the war over origins actually wins the war over eschatology or the future. 
So in fact, what, what you have during the, well, we'll say this, the ancient Near East, you had the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which was a creation myth. And uh, the story goes that the god Marduk, this is a pagan story, created the world out of the severed corpse of a goddess that he killed. And he created heaven and earth out of the severed corpse of this particular goddess. And then he created humans as slaves. So we have this pagan creation myth story that is centered around violence and power. Into this cultural situation, you have the Genesis creation story that is antithetical to that. The creation story that frames who we are as followers of Jesus goes like this. God did not create humans as slaves. He created them as human partners in order to work with them to bring his wisdom, his goodness, his beauty, his life, his shalom, his truth, his life, his favor, come on somebody, to the rest of the world. So yes, all humans are created in the image of God. You are an image bearer. But what makes a human? We come now to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Before I say that, let me just say this really quick. That was the ancient uh, Near East creation myth, Enuma Elish. I do want to talk about the modern mythology centered around Darwinianism. Charles Darwin is in fact probably contributed, uh, many people contribute to him as the one who demystified the world or stripped the world of any intrinsic meaning. Uh, His atheistic version of natural selection basically in every sense said that God as a hypothesis is irrelevant. We don't need God and if you don't need God, you don't need morality. Thus the responsibility to create one's own identity is placed on the individual. So that's the modern pathology or the the modern origin story that is shaping our social imaginary today. Many people just breathe this in. They inhale this story that there really is no God and I am responsible to create myself. Have you heard this, that story? You got to be true to yourself. Behind that is this entire idea that the world has been stripped of metaphysics and if God does not exist, the morality is something that's just a matter of taste. Therefore, you have the ultimate responsibility to create yourself. This is the making of our cultural moment. This is the making of our modern pathologies. When you have no God, you have no morality. When you have no morality, you have a fluid and unstable understanding of human nature. And when you have a fluid, unstable understanding of of human nature, what do you have? You have moral anarchy. But what does the Bible say about who we are? What constitutes a human being? We talked about this several weeks ago. But humans, as we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, are body dust plus spirit breath. So what happens in this second creation story that kind of tells us a different aspect of what God did in the creation of Genesis chapter 1? God takes dust and he breathes into it. He makes man and then he places him into a garden to work it and to cultivate it. So here we have humans as body, dust, plus spirit. So in other words, a person does not have a spirit body, but is spirit body in interacting duality. So we're not just spirits floating around. Can I get an amen? Amen. Boo, right? (laughs) Nor are we just bodied creatures that have no transcendent reference point. You're not just a machine. A purposeless, 
machine-like thing wherein you could just modify your body as you wish. Which leads us to the second conclusion that we find from, or deduction that we find from Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, is we lived in, or we live in sexed embodiment. Male and female matter. Absolutely. So your body, from this um, distinctively Christian perspective, matters. It matters infinitely. God made us male and female. And of course, you are more than just your body, but you are not less. Again, and let me restate this, and I'm going to make this as clear as possible. You are an embodied image bearer created to reflect the goodness and wisdom of God into this world. You're not just spirit. You're not just body. You are spirit, body, and interacting duality. That's just a complicated way of saying you are spirit and body, and they mingle together in a mysterious way, and only God knows how that works. So you are an embodied image bearer created to build or to be a part of communities that always always reflect beauty and justice and truth and life and shalom back into the world. But your body, and I want to make this very clear, is not just a free-floating artifice. It's not just um, a cultural phenomenon. You are not a ghost in a machine. Let me make that very clear. You are not a ghost in a machine. We don't just emphasize your inner life over your physical life, nor do we emphasize your physical life over your inner life. We emphasize as followers of Jesus both in this interacting duality. Can I get an amen to that? So as we talked about last week, we talked about transgenderism. I want to make it very clear. We are not after the trans community. Let me say this very clear. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities over this present darkness. So we are not against people. We love people. Can I get an amen to that? And I'm going to talk more about this here pretty soon. But we are against uh, ideas that take people away from the good purposes of God. There are male- I, hate, I hate to break it to you, to you modern people, but there are malevolent spiritual beings that are part of this cosmic hierarchy that are in opposition to God's good purpose for your life. They want to say no and they want to spoil the image of God in us. So it's our responsibility as the church to prophetically declare no. You are made in the image of God. You are not a cosmological fluke. You are not just some random collocation of atoms. You as a male, you as a female, really matter in the eyes of God and in the eyes of eternity. That is who you are. However, we have transgenderism as a worldview, transactivists as a worldview that are purporting something radically different. In fact, transactivists reject that gender is connected to common forms of bodily uh, experience, like pregnancy and uh, conception, and we could go on and on and on, and they deny any significance of the body. In fact, everything is psychologized now. So the body is irrelevant. Irrelevant. In fact, the trans activist, and I'm just correcting now the world level view assumption, has a very low view of the body. 
In fact, they actually have, because they have a low view of the body, they have a low view of human dignity. People, and they would disagree with this, but I, I just have to argue reductio ad absurdum. I'm going philosopher on you today, okay? Argue to the extreme point, and this is what I believe fundamentally, that if you deny the, the presence of the body and that you try to create this radical divorce between your gender and your bodily existence, you are saying that people really don't matter. People really don't matter. Now, I know some people would disagree with that, and, and that's not what I want to argue here today, but this is where we are at in our cultural moment. But I just want to say this really quick. Your body has a purpose. For example, uh, one TED Talk cardiologist, Paula Johnson, said this, every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. In other words, no matter what your gender philosophy is, when you are sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they still need to know your original biological sex in order to give you the best possible health care. So am I trying to like score points, political points here? No, I'm not. I'm just trying to give you a biblical perspective on who we are, right? You are an image bearer. Many of us are dysfunctional image bearers, but that's okay. Some of you are psychotic. Let's move on. Some of you are Philadelphia Eagle fans. Oh my God, please. We all have, guys, we live in a disordered world. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We all have disordered desires. I am not in any way trying to single out those who are experiencing gender dysphoria as if, oh, you, you're something fundamentally wrong with you as opposed to the rest of the population. Guys, I think what's happening, and I think this is just the sovereign work of God, he's allowing our cultural moment to happen so we can see through the eyes of gender dysphoria who we all really are. That is, we all are disordered in some way. Some of you have a better estimation of yourself than you should have. And I don't want to get preacher on you today or professor on you, but we believe in pervasive depravity, right? That all of our desires are disordered. And without Jesus... We have no hope. Without Jesus, there's no healing. Without Jesus, there's no new creation. Without Jesus, there's absolutely no hope and blessing. It is Jesus that comes to bless us. It's Jesus who comes and forgives us. It's Jesus who comes and sets us to rights. It's Jesus who justifies us. It's Jesus who sanctifies us. It's Jesus who renews us. It's Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit who transforms our anxiety. Come on, somebody. And our depression and the despair that we feel deep down inside. So we're not trying to bring judgment to anybody. We're just trying to say, okay, this is who we are. So how do we respond in this moment? How does the church respond? How do, how do we live as faithful followers of Jesus in our moment? Number one, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but number one, Jesus lived to serve all kinds of people, helping them to come to repentance. Luke chapter 5, 30 through 32 says this. 
I think we have it up there. And Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at Jesus and his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them and said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. All people, even tax collectors, and those who back in the purity world of Jesus would have been considered absolutely outside of the range of God's love. Acts 10, 38 says this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus places the priority of following him on learning to become a missionary people. Jesus is on mission, and if you intend to follow Jesus, you are also summoned by heaven itself to be on mission as well. In fact, when Jesus looked to Peter and said, come and follow me, he did not say what like most preachers usually kind of cast it as, come and follow me, and I will turn you into the best version of yourself. Come and follow me, follow me, and I'll give you a Lambo, Lamborghini, right? Give you gold chains and bless you and all that kind of stuff. And certainly Jesus blesses us, but Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, hey, come and follow me, and then I'm going fig- to help you figure out all the mysteries of the cosmos. And certainly there's an element to that where Jesus exposes us to the apocalypse and there's so much in the New Testament that we can learn from, right? Good doctrine is absolutely important, but Jesus never placed the emphasis on good doctrine and becoming the best version of yourself. What did he place the emphasis on? What did Jesus prioritize? He said this, Peter, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So what Jesus is essentially tying together, wrapping up, is human flourishing and the joy that Jesus promised us and the peace that he intends to give us is wrapped up in us learning to become a missionary people. Your healing, the joy and the peace that God wants to give you is tied up with learning to fish for people. This is why we say this all the time here at Capital Church. We do not as a church have a mission statement. God's mission has a church. Did you know that God's on a mission right now to rescue this broken, disordered world? Woo! Come on, somebody. Some of you in the back are like, oh, he's getting, the preacher's getting a little too wide, but I'm going to preach today. Jesus is on a mission to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, to save the sinner, to transform lives, to bring new creation into old creation. Come on. That is who God is. He is a missionary God. So we don't come on a Sunday and just sing, Kumbaya, my Lord. That's a great song, right? I don't, whatever. But we don't just sing that song and then try to like extract ourselves from the world. 
When we come to a church like this, we're lifting up our hands in worship, worship and we're glorifying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there will be one day that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. But we're lifting up the name of Jesus because he has changed our lives. And then we listen to a word because the word's going to come in power and grace and anointing. And it's going to change us because God's word does not return void, but it will accomplish what it's sent to do. We believe in the primacy of preaching. Guys, God's word is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts between the soul and the spirit of the joint and the marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we come because the Holy Spirit is the great change agent. So it's through the words of God that God comes and meddles, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Meddles with our perceptions. Meddles with our bad assumptions. Meddles with our defective theology. And it's the word of God that sets us free and makes us truly who he has called us to be. Come on, somebody. But we don't, as we come and we worship and we listen to the word, we don't come to get away from the world and stay away. Yes, we come to withdraw, but we come to withdraw so we can be empowered by the spirit so then we can go back. Because God wants to co-labor with you and partner with you to bring healing to your neighbors and your neighborhoods and the streets around you and the schools around you. God wants you to come and be a change agent as you work with him and his power and with the Holy Spirit and wisdom at your place of work, at school. God has called you to reach out to those who are on the street and on the sidewalk. Come on, somebody. In the grocery store, at Starbucks, we are a missionary people. We have the good news of King Jesus. So Jesus lived to serve all kinds of people, helping them to come to repentance. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but repentance, guys, please hear me, is not us changing ourselves so then God can accept us. Repentance simply, from the Greek, is metanoia. It simply means to go beyond the mind that you have. So repentance simply means to embrace the values of the kingdom, right? It's okay. It's making the decision, even though I'm a broken person, repentance means I'm going to turn to you, God, and what you say yes to, I say yes. And what you say no to, I say no to how you define me and reality. I say yes to, and any alternative voice, any alternative narrative, I say no to. Right? And this is our responsibility is to help people and direct them to King Jesus. Because the ultimate question in our culture is this. It's, it's a war zone, guys. And the war is over this question. Who gets to decide selfhood? The culture, the broader culture, the wider world, the Western world would say, you do. Oh my God. I can't handle that responsibility. If it's up to me, guys, this world will explode in five minutes, right? I'm so glad defining self and defining identity is not predicated on me. 
But that's what the world says. To be authentic, as we talked about several weeks ago, you have to decide what that means. Or, the question is, as followers of Jesus, we answer in an alternative way. We say it's not authenticity that we root our authority in. It's not in the self or in my taste or preferences that we root the authority to build and construct selfhood and identity. What we say as followers of Jesus, that it is King Jesus, his good words, his good purposes, his promises, his life, his blessing that gives shape to who we are as fully embodied image bearers. So we are called to be a community to serve all kinds of people. And that includes Raider fans and those who have cats. And all the dog people said amen to that. God's working on some hearts today, dog people. All right. Number two, like God, just give me a couple more minutes and then we'll pray. Like God, we are to be known for mercy, grace, love, healing, and forgiveness, not judgment and condemnation. Exodus 34, six through seven is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible and it's about God. Here it goes, verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed or met. This is steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Here we have who God is. God is gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger. This is who God is. This is his essential character. Here's the problem. The problem is that there are some people out there who are Christians that would essentialize not the goodness and love of the Father, they essentialize his wrath. So God is essentially or necessarily a wrathful being who wants to annihilate all us sinners. That is a profound distortion of what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that God is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. The Bible thusly, what essentializes loving kindness, compassion, faithfulness, and steadfast love as the essence of who God is. My my problem is what, what happens is we're wrathful people, we are angry people, and so we draw a portrait of God made in our own image and we essential, essentialize that wrath and we draw this crazy portrait of God and then we get on Facebook and we go after people and if, if I see you on Facebook going after people, I'll shut you down. <laughs> but I'm not in Facebook because I can't do that anyways, right? So, so many people essentialize the wrath of God. No, no, no. We are called to essentialize his love and his mercy and embody that. Now, Let me say this, does God get angry? Yes, but God's anger is a perfect anger, but it's transient. It's not a part of his character. For example, I think I'm a pretty good dad of 7,000 kids. Every now and then, more than every now and then, my kids, they fight. 
My older boys, they fight a lot, and they're the best boys in the world. Every now and then, one of my boys will kick the other boy in the clavicle, okay? Now, I think I'm a pretty good dad, and I think my wife and I, I think we're really good parents. My wife is a lot better parent than me, okay? But I think we're pretty good. I think we love our kids. I think it, we, we demonstrate that love in a thousand different ways. But if I see my son going around to all my children, kicking them in the clavicle, would I be a good father if I let, them, let him continue to do that? Absolutely no. As a response of love, I have a righteous anger. And I put a stop to the kicking of clavicles in my house. This, I mean, project this unto God. God is essentially loving, but the shadow side of God's love is that he must address evil. If he didn't address evil and wickedness and human folly that spoils God's good creation, God by definition could not be loving. I want to be loving to my other six children if I let Wesley boy, and I'm just throwing his name out. Sorry, Wesley boy. Close your ears if you're listening to this. Went around kicking everybody in the stomach, right? So God, out of his love, must put a stop to evil. But here's the thing. God's essential characteristic is compassion, grace, slow to anger, and he abounds in steadfast love and tender mercy. Now, my question is, guys, does the world see that from us? This is going to be a weird analogy. It's funny, my kids, my, my youngest two, two-year-olds, toddlers, I'll ask them, because I can smell them, did you go potty in your diaper? And they're like, no, right? I'm like, well, dude, I could smell you three miles away, right? There are people that have so, and I'll bring this full circle, but there are people that have so essentialized the wrath of God and they've internalized that into their life and they're trying to cover that up and they go out into the world and they try to fake it or pretend, but people can smell you. So my... So we're like, that's just, that's just a weird analogy. Yes, but Paul used it in 1 Corinthians. We are the fragrance of God. And I want us to be a sweet fragrance. And of course, there are some people that are going to take what we're saying today and the love that we're talking about, how Jesus is king of the world, and they think that's death. I get that, right? That's the problem with sufficient depravity, right? It distorts the human heart and the human mind. But I want us to be a church that builds for the kingdom and is a sweet fragrance and a sweet aroma to our culture, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our places of work, to people on the street, at different stores, at different places, through throughout our city, throughout our nation, we are called to be the sweet fragrance of God, demonstrating the love and the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness of God. We are not our first response to anybody who's experiencing anything that we find, whatever, is not judgment or condemning. It is always loving. Guys, whether you like this or not, if you don't like this, you go to a different church, but most, I know most of the other pastors and churches, they're good churches, so you're not going to like them either, okay? But this church is going to be a welcoming church. So bring your brokenness, bring your pain, bring your shame, 
Bring that porn addiction. Bring that gender dysphoria. Bring the sexual confusion. Bring the same-sex attraction. Bring all the disordered desires, the anxiety and all of it, your pain and your trauma. This church will welcome it. This church will walk with you and direct you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is the savior of all people, who loves you with an everlasting love, who has a plan for your life, who's here for you, will never leave you nor forsake you. Come on. He is a good God. Woo! We're called to be like God. Number three, as I close, we're called to pray. Hammer said this in the 80s or 90s, we pray to make it through the day. But here's the problem. I understand the neurotheology behind prayer, right? It does something to your brain chemistry. So there's a therapeutic thing that happens when you pray, and it's amazing. Pray more, because there's major health benefits to it. But prayer is not just some therapeutic self-actualization of yourself. Prayer is way more than that. Prayer is you partnering with the Holy Spirit and his good purposes over creation. God wants to partner with you to bring about his healing in this world. So prayer transcends you, and when it works, it's unlimited by space and time. Prayer is, is dynamic, guys. We got to get a new view of prayer. But Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, there's a fascinating passage that I want to walk you through really quick. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is with his disciples. He's transfigured. Then he comes down the mountain. His disciples are f- fighting with uh, some of the religious leaders. They can't cast out this demon out of this, this young kid. And there's a kerfuffle. Everyone say kerfuffle. Like, I don't even know what that means, but it is. We'll go with it, right? So Jesus inserts himself into this, this, like, this contentious issue. Uh, and he asks the question, okay, what's going on? And the disciples said, hey, we can't cast out this demon. Uh, and the disciples are rendered nonplussed because at this point they've been casting out every demon. Now something different is happening. So Jesus then cast, sees the crowds coming and he casts out the demon out of this boy. I, let me say this really quick. Modern people, even in the church, would not accept Jesus today. He'd be too charismatic. He'd be coming to some people here in this church service and just start casting out demons, which I would love to see that. And every, you know, <laughs> hopefully he would have come to like God. Okay, not me. Anyways, um, <laughs> Jesus casts out this demon. And what I love about this passage is that the disciples that afterwards the crowds are dismissed. Disciples come to him, and they said, "Why can't we cast out this this demon?" Because implied is, man, if you read the whole Gospel of Mark. They've been casting out demons like it was nothing. They had authority like it was nothing. Jesus gave them authority. Then they didn't have it one day. What's going on? Well, Jesus said, hey, in the original manuscript, Jesus said this. Well, you can't cast out this kind but by prayer. Older manuscripts say prayer and fasting. I, I prefer the original manuscripts that just simply say prayer. But by prayer... You can only cast out this kind. What's interesting, that kind, that word in the Greek means species. Okay, so are you saying, Jesus, that there is a malevolent cosmic hierarchy of wicked powers? Yeah. Even Paul says it. Jesus implies it. 
Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities over this present darkness. What's happening? Well, what's happening is there's greater resistance. There are powers, spirit, malevolent spiritual powers and presences, we'll call it that, that are quasi-personal, that are directly in opposition to God's will. And Jesus says, hey guys, we're at a new level of ministry. Back then you had authority. Now, buckle your seatbelts. Because now, in this moment of my public ministry, things are going to get heated. There are new powers in town. And they're resisting my mission to go to the cross and to give my life for the world. So what do you have to do? You have to pray. Why am I talking about this? Well, I really believe that God's calling the church to pray because I think we are in a new moment that the church has yet to experience. We have had authority in the past over other things. We've had power over other things, but we are now encountering a new kind of thing. And it necessitates that the church gives themselves to prayer and plead to God on behalf of this generation. And as we do that, God then gives us authority. As we do that, God then triumphs over all powers. I'm not here to scare you. I'm not here to say that there are powers that are greater than Jesus, because it's very clear that at the death of Jesus on the cross, every power in this world has been radically defeated. It is fait accompli. It's over, in other words. Jesus, guys, has won the victory over every enslaving power and sin. But I think we're in a new, a new time for the church. And we can't just do what we used to do. We can't just go around nonchalant thinking that everything's going to go our way. Guys, there's new, there's new resistance. There are new powers. There are new spiritual dynamics that are at play that are resisting God's purposes. But the good news is, is that Jesus has already won the victory. And we have the power of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, we can take authority over that which is spoiling the image of those in our culture. Finally, number four, and I'll close on this. We have to teach our kids the importance of their bodies. I mentioned this several weeks ago. First Corinthians chapter six says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Never said your spirit, your subjective self, your inner life. No, your embodied self is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This interacting duality that makes you, you, right, is a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. I love Psalms. Psalms talks about this all the time. But you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knit in your mother's womb. Your body is important. I love what my wife teaches our kids. She's been doing this for many years. Uh, she, it, in terms of encouraging and really shaping their, their understanding of self and their understanding of identity, she never begins, and I love this, and she walked me through the logic. She never begins with, oh, you're beautiful and you're great and you're a great athlete, all that kind of stuff. And those are true, right? <laughs> My, 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 my sons will, will become a tight end and quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. We, we know that to be true. 
Um, but she always starts with this. Jesus, and this is what she teaches the kids. Jesus is Lord. And she has them repeated after uh, her. And he is good. And he is my best friend. And he made me just as he wanted me. And he did a good job. I can trust him. He makes no mistakes. Again, our kids are repeating this. He loves me so much no matter what, and he is always with me. His plans for me are better than I could dream, and he made me with a unique purpose, so I am going to follow him. And then I love what my wife does. She, she goes, these are my hands, and again, they repeat after her. Uh, they are awesome. God gave them to me so I could help people, not hurt people. And she just does this every single night. What is she saying? She's saying, guys, you have dignity. Your body matters. Your body really matters. She is imprinting, inculcating into their mind a high view of their embodied self. We need to teach our kids that your body matters. Your bodily experience matters. Your inner life, yes, matters as well. But we have to do a better job of doing that. Can I get an amen? amen? I also pray this over our kids as well. I pray Daniel, and I've taken like a pastiche of different verses and put it together in a prayer. And I've been doing this for the last five years, and I pray this over our kids, that they would be numbered among the wise and the righteous, and they would shine like the stars in a crooked generation, and they would turn many towards God. And I love it because, guys, our young people, I love it, they're a Daniel generation. God's raising up Daniels right now in our kids' ministry and on Wednesday night in our youth ministry. Daniels. And we live in, come on, a crooked generation, a generation that doesn't believe in meaning anymore, a generation that doesn't believe in metaphysics anymore, a generation that does not really believe in ethical systems or morality anymore, a generation that basically is prone to moral anarchy and violence, and yet God is raising up Daniels who will be righteous and who will be wise. Guys, and they're going to shine like the stars. This is what we need to pray over our kids. This is what we need to teach our kids that their body matters infinitely. Finally, number five, and I want to end here. God places his people in strategic places to serve and to love in order to build creative bridges between the church and the wider world. Some of you, as I close here, it's 1230. I'm almost done. I usually lie about being almost done. But let me just say this really quick. Um, I... I firmly believe that some of you, you have been assuming wrongly about the season you're in. You have assumed that the season you're in is a fluke. It's fluky, or it's accidental, or it's a phenomenon, that somehow you're outside the range of God's sovereign love and will. I just want to say, yes, God can come into any season and bring deliverance and healing and hope. Can I get an amen to that? But within that framework, let's put that to the side and let's just say this, and I think some of you need to hear this. Some of you have been assuming you're in the wrong season and that God doesn't care. But I want to say as your pastor, it could be the case you're exactly in the season that God wants you to be. Furthermore, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Some of you are like, I can't stand my boss, and I can't stand my place of work, and I can't stand the spiritual environment, and I can't stand this. And John, oh my God, I can't stand John at work. He annoys me, right? 
my God, John. And then your spouse is like, just please shut up about John, right? <laughs> like many of us just assume that we are at the wrong place. I would just like to suggest as your pastor, could it be that you're exactly where you're supposed to be? That God has placed you in a strategic place. Genesis chapter two, verse eight says, he took the man, this interacting duality, a spirit body we call man and placed him in the garden. Do you know God places you in specific places so that you could build creative bridges between God and the church and the wider world? So it could be the case that John needs to hear about Jesus and the boss that you can't stand needs to hear about Jesus and that place that you're at that you just don't like. It could be the case that God has designed you to be there because there's a purpose for you wherein the Holy Spirit wants to work through you to bring change to those who are broken. So finally, how do we do this? Because some of you are experiencing, I actually had several wonderful conversations with people couple weeks ago about, okay, how do I deal with just this cultural moment and just the craziness over so many different things? And how do we talk about gender identity and at, a, at a place at work? And I had to think about that. And this is my suggestion as I close. And I'm going to pray for us. I think rather than obsessing over gender identity and getting into an argument with someone, let's just forget that. Let's start first with love and compassion and let's start directing people not towards their gender identity, but towards their spiritual identity. Just do it. Just see. Let them, let them share what they're experiencing. Be there for them. There are so many people that are experiencing real psychological distress. Just be there for them. And then just talk, talk to them about, hey, God loves you. God cares for you. It's what I believe. Jesus died for all of us. We're all messed up. God's good. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen? If we do this, I think we go a long ways in building creative bridges with those who desperately are in need of Jesus. And everyone said amen. amen. Question as we close is, can God change people? The New Testament answers with a resounding yes. Paul, on the road to Damascus, encounters Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to him. Paul was going in one direction in one moment. Paul's life was radically changed. And then this is what Paul did. This is what he says in his autobiographical sketches that we find in the New Testament. He says, guys, I'm paraphrasing him. If God could take a bloodthirsty terrorist who is killing and persecuting Christians and by his grace radically changed my life, if he did that for me, he can do it for you. He can do it for you. God is a God who loves to specialize in transforming the human heart. I want the church to believe this again, that we're not just going to be satisfied. We're all sinners saved by grace. Stop that. You used to be a sinner, but you were saved by grace. Now in Christ, you are a child of God. 
who occasionally, or maybe more than occasionally, sins, but your essential identity is no longer a sinner. Your essential identity is you are a child, you are a son, you are a daughter of King Jesus. He changes you. Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your presence here today. Lord, I thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, but such were some of you. Such were some of you. I love this great but. But such were some of you. You were going against God. You had lost your mind or you were experiencing so many different things. And yet God came and washed you and sanctified you and justified you in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Father, I thank you that you're doing that today. I thank you that this church is going to be, I don't know, there's going to, there's going to come an increase to this church. More blessing, more grace. And I thank you that you're going to retool us to really buy in by the power of the Spirit that missionary impulse to reach people. I thank you, Father. We place, we just make a decision today in our heart and only through your grace to follow you, Jesus, and to prioritize becoming a person that you work through to bring healing to broken lives. Lord, I thank you, Father. This house is a house of healing. This house is a house of transformation. This house is a house of grace and love, not judgment and condemnation. And I thank you that you would teach all of us how to direct our spiritual lives to King Jesus. And so we thank you for taking this word and sealing it in our hearts today. I release the power of the Holy Spirit to go to work and to take this word and to do what you intended this word to do in us. Seal the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Seal it in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, those who are experiencing the psychological distress of maybe gender dysphoria here today, let them know that they're loved. They're loved, 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 they're loved. Lord, I thank you that your love would fill their hearts today and their minds. I pray for those who know people that are experiencing the psychological distress of gender dysphoria. Lord, I thank you that you would give them wisdom. You would fill them with your power and your love to bring hope to those who are experiencing real psychological distress. Father, we thank you for the empowerment of the Spirit on this church to be who you've called us to be. You've called us to be a beacon of hope. You've called us to be a people that partner with the Holy Spirit to bring change in this city, for this time, this hour, this moment. We bless you, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. I want Rudy to come up. I'm going to have him do something really quick. We're almost done. I'm going to have him read a passage for us because I believe this passage is for this church. And then I'm going to have Rudy pray over us. Guys, this is going to be really good. Are you guys ready? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for that amazing, amazing uh, word. Uh, this morning in the prayer room, um, God's Holy Spirit spoke to, to me, and um, so I prayed this over the worship team, and I um, 
prayed it over Pastor uh, Chris for, for today. Um, and it's out of uh, Isaiah 61, uh, but actually it's a prophecy that was fulfilled um, in Luke um, by Jesus. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's a prophecy for us today, I believe. And in this, I didn't realize, but I was prophesying to you. <laughs> See you guys, and uh, and I realized so. Uh, I just want to encourage you that uh, you've been chosen and you've been appointed and you've been anointed uh, by God for God's purpose. And uh, it says, uh, "The year of the Lord's favor, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted." to proclaim freedom for the captive and to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, and they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then in six, it says this, and you will be called priest of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive double portion and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance and so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. We're co-heirs with Jesus. We're co-laborers with Jesus. You receive this as a personal prophecy to you because God is going to do amazing things in this place. He's going to bring increase like we've heard. And instead of just taking another level, instead of just taking one step, he's going to take us two steps at once, a double portion. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you, God, for your amazing word, Father. And we receive this prophecy, Father. We receive it for us today. Let it be fulfilled, Lord, this day in this house, Father, that we will be ministers of the Lord. We will be called ministers of the Lord, Father that we will be appointed, that we will be anointed by you, Holy Spirit, that we will proclaim the good news, Father. Give us a double portion today, Father. I pray, Father, and I decree, Lord, and I proclaim this word, Father, for over this church, that we would be a church known for a love of God, the love for God, and a love for people. That we would be a church, Father, of double portion, double 
double love, Father, be poured out. Double kindness, Father. Double favor. Double mercy, Father. That things would be multiplied, Father, for your splendor, for your kingdom, Father, for your glory, Lord. And we give you all the honor, all the glory in this place to you, Father. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. As we stay standing, I want everyone to say, I am called. I am called. No, come on. Everyone said, I, I am called. Come on. Everyone say, I am called. I am called. For such a time as this. Come on. Say it. For such a time as this. To set the captives free. Everyone say, I am called. For such a time as this. To set the captives free. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.